0: From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, amiodarone and optic neuropathy.
1: A patient comes in on amiodarone for five months, and what they've noticed is some mild visual loss in one eye just over the past couple of weeks. And when they're examined, it turns out that they, they do have mild loss in one eye, but the other disc is swollen as well.
0: First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Valerie Pervin declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646 Eight zero eight zero two three one. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom dial, 20 8275 That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Most of us know amiodarone for its deposition in the cornea and for the verticillated pattern the deposits make. But amiodarone is also associated with a much less common and much more serious complication, optic neuropathy. But how to tell amiodarone-associated optic neuropathy from non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy? To set us straight, I have as my guest today Valerie Pervin, She's the author of a recently published study looking at just this question. Valerie, what is amiodarone and what effects is it known to have on the eyes?
1: Um, well, it's an antiarrhythmic and the main effect that's the most common effect and, and most clinically relevant one is corneal deposits, which is fairly constant. And although most patients aren't really symptomatic, some patients have some glare from them, light sensitivity, and they're reversible after the medication has stopped. So they're totally non-serious but fairly common um, and no big deal. And, and that's about it for for, for typical or, or you know, clinically relevant side effects. But the, the, the big issue, the hot topic has been the optic neuropathy.
0: What is the pathophysiology of amiodarone-associated optic neuropathy?
1: Well, that's also part of the controversy. There's a one animal study and one human study that have found deposits of the amiodarone in tissue at the back of the eye and in the optic nerve. And one study, the human one found deposits actually in neurons and the animal study found deposits in the glial cells. The human study was of a patient who was on the medication and happened to die. It was not a patient that had actual optic neuropathy. So it's a little hard to, to extrapolate to, to be certain, you know, to, to go from that study to actual optic nerve dysfunction, but but for but that's the, the basic model is, is that certainly the inclusions have been found in these structures in the optic disc, and so from there the, the next step is to assume that if if the this, the substance is then collects in the optic disc. Uh, it does see, we think that it then causes axoplasmic obstruction, so axoplasmic transport stops, and then disc edema accumulates. And some of us think that what happens next varies. So, so my understanding, my model of this is that this deposition causes disc swelling, which some discs tolerate and which other discs do not. And so some tolerate meaning that they don't lose vision. So the disc swells, but the vision is normal, and not not just visual acuity, but visual field, pupil, all various measures of optic nerve function that we make. So the optic nerve continues to function well, but it's swollen. But in other discs, we think the disc just doesn't tolerate it well. And that would be by virtue of the disc structure, perhaps, this classic crowded optic disc that we think predisposes to non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, or maybe because of atherosclerotic changes, or fluctuations in blood pressure, or all, all the different variables that we think go into non-arteritic AION. But for whatever host reasons, some, some eyes just don't tolerate the disc edema, and they then proceed on to lose vision, either mild or moderate or sometimes severe. So that's, that's the
0: model. Now, we know with the deposits in the cornea, that if the amiodarone is discontinued, that the deposits go away. With regard to the neuropathy, do we know that if the amiodarone is discontinued, that the neuropathy improves?
1: That's that's a hard one to answer because in some patients, the medication has been stopped and the, and the disc swelling went away and the vision did get better. In occasional cases, the medicine wasn't stopped, but the just swelling went away and the vision got better anyway. So it's a little hard to guarantee, it's it's very hard to predict for a particular patient what would happen if you didn't stop and that's the usual clinical relevance of it. I mean, that's that's what a patient wants to know or that's what their cardiologist wants to know. You know, do, do we do we really need to stop this medicine? What happens if we don't? What happens if we do? And, and it's a little hard to promise things on either end, to promise that it'll get better if they stop or to promise that it won't get better if we don't stop. So that's one of the murky, murky areas, and that's all of this is assuming. Again, I, this is my, um, this is what I believe and what I think our data indicates. But there are still people out there that that will question whether there is such a thing as ametrop neuropathy. And when I say it's controversial, I don't even mean um, that the management or you know or the diagnostic criteria. It's so that there are people who are very, very skeptical. People in my field, people I respect, who who have kind of diehards and and are still skeptical and will still maintain that that either all or maybe some of these patients are just a coincidence. They have non-orderoidic AION and they happen to be on amiodarone. And the the argument is um, these are vasculopathic people that the population's going to be similar. These are people, older individuals, they have cardiovascular risk factors. That's why they're on the amiodarone and those are the same, that's the same profile. Those are the same people who are likely to develop AION so I mean I don't think that's true. I think there is such a thing as amiodarone optic neuropathy, but that was really part of our study was not not simply to describe it, but even to, to to help establish that it really does exist and that it is distinct from AION that occurs in patients on amiodarone, and to try to develop criteria for telling those two apart.
0: Can I have you describe the design of the study?
1: Well, it's a retrospective review. So this is a chart review of the patients we had seen. Uh, and this is what twenty-two years of practice. Patients who developed an optic neuropathy while on AMIO drone, and we excluded anybody that didn't have enough follow-up information, or people in whom um, people for whom their case was complicated enough that we really couldn't be certain it wasn't something else. There were a couple of patients in there that had some evidence of vasculitis, and they were on amio, and we thought it was the amio, but but it was murky enough to to not be certain. So we we had eliminated some some patients on those grounds. uh, We were left with 22 cases, and then we looked at them and we tried to establish criteria for dividing them in two categories. What we envisioned, actually, as we started to do this, was a system sort of like we have for multiple sclerosis, which is in, in the MS world, and the world of neurology, there's what's called clinically definite MS and probable MS and possible MS. And as I explained to patients, it has nothing to do with the severity of the condition. It has to do with our certainty as to to what they have. And there's in MS, there's actual criteria that are, keep getting fancier all the time for how do you put people in which category. And so that's kind of what we envisioned for this. We thought we would come out with a group of patients who we thought definitely had amiodarone optic neuropathy and a group that had maybe you know, sort of indeterminate or maybe they do, maybe they don't, and then a group that just pretty much definitely didn't that had a non-arteritic AIO. And that's kind of what we were aiming at, and and it did come out. We felt like we could could ultimately put them into these groups, although we ended up hedging a little so that the group that, that was going to be clinically definite turns out we call them probable or, or we believe that they have it. We, we acknowledge that there's not a way to prove it. So it's, it's a clinical diagnosis. There's not some ultimate way to prove it, but, but by criteria set forth by others and based on previously described cases, we think this group fits well for what we believe is an amiodarone optic neuropathy.
0: What data did you gather? What parameters were assessed?
1: Yeah, we looked at the age and gender, the dose of amurone that people were on, the interval between when treatment was started and when they developed visual symptoms. We looked at a variety of examination findings, including visual acuity and visual field measurements, pupillary measurements at the time of onset, and then later we looked at follow-up interval, how, how long they were followed for. And then we looked at what happened, what, what was hap- what was done to their amiodarone dose, whether it was stopped or discontin- um, or decreased. And then as much as we could, we tried to get follow-up information, to kind of tracked people down um, to find out what happened to them in terms of their cardiac status, had they done all right on alternative treatments or not.
0: What symptoms were felt most likely to represent amiodarone-associated optic neuropathy?
1: Well, visual loss is pretty variable. Some occasionally patients were found, I'm looking back at my list, yeah, one, I was going to say some of them were asymptomatic. I think just one, either one, one patient was totally asymptomatic, often one eye would be asymptomatic. So in patients that had bilateral discodema, they would often come to medical attention because they had some sort of visual loss, some something subjective in one eye, so they had blurred vision in one eye, but when they were examined, it turned out they actually had discodema in both eyes so so the, the main symptom for for when people had symptoms which is most of the time it would just be visual blurring and the group that turned out to have that we believed had visual loss due to amiodarone so the true amiodarone optic neuropathy um patients in those cases the visual loss tends to be fairly insidious meaning it's, it's as opposed to the non-arteritic AION where where people wake up one day and half their vision's gone it's the amiodarone it's a lot vaguer than that it's you know, just lately my vision's been a little blurry is, is a classic kind of story.
0: Now, not to play devil's advocate here, but was it simply that symptoms atypical for non-arteritic ischemic optic neuropathy were understood to result from the amiodarone? Could it have been that these symptoms had arisen from something else, for example, some other medication that the patient was taking? That's
1: sort of a complicated question. Certainly what we did for for. Whatever group these patients ended up in, whatever their findings were, we always felt that we had it. We, we took measures to exclude other potential causes of optic neuropathy or optic disc swelling, and that varies a little depending on the clinical setting. So, for the patients, for instance, with bilateral disc edema, a big issue is: is could this be increased intracranial pressure? Patients with bilateral disc edema and good optic nerve function. So, all those patients got scanned. If anybody had any kind of symptoms suggestive of increased intracranial pressure, they would have a spinal tap as well. A lot of these patients can't really safely be tapped, or it's not a good idea because they're on Coumadin. That's not uncommon in patients on Amio. So so sometimes cases where ideally you would like to just go ahead and do the spinal tap and measure the pressure, but it's it's a relative contraindication, so we don't always have measurements. So in some cases, increased intracranial pressure is, is excluded by a combination of the scan and no symptoms. And then for patients with either bilateral or unilateral in older age groups, the other big issue is to exclude giant cell arteritis. So patients were certainly questioned about typical symptoms. They all had sed rates, CRPs, in in recent years, not longer ago, and temporal artery biopsy if indicated. So, um, and, and then none of them were. I mean, as far as other medications, gosh, there's not very many that would cause something that looks like amio. Because and and that's one of the the um, Arguments people have used one of the objections to the whole entity of amiodarone optic neuropathy is that it looks so different from most toxic optic neuropathies. Most most toxic things would cause certainly they'd be bilateral and kind of insidious, but not with disc edema. Sometimes there's a sort of ruddy look to the discs in in toxic optic neuropathies, but but frank swelling is certainly not not typical. Um, yeah, and and so this, and then then bilateral sequential or unilateral visual loss would be very very atypical for any other kind of optic neuropathy.
0: What were the results of your study?
1: Right. Well, we found, but what we did um, as as far as grouping, what we decided to do was to start by separating patients with bilateral visual bilateral disc edema or or bilateral let's call it optic neuropathy. So whether whether it's getting or visual loss, but but people with bilateral disease versus unilateral, and in the group that was bilateral, we eliminated other causes as we spoke about things like increased pressure, giant cell arteritis, and in all of those patients, we felt that based on clinical criteria and excluding other things, we felt they all reasonably fit a diagnosis of demyelinating optic neuropathy. For the other two groups, so so the the the, the remainder. Uh, who had unilateral disc edema, unilateral optic neuropathy. We then split them based on whether they seemed like, did, did they have the features of typical non-arteritic AION or not. And if they were typical, then we put them into the not amyode group. So we said, this is NAION. We had three of those patients. In, in the first group, we had 14 of the bilateral and of the, the group that had typical NAION. Findings: They were just three of those, and then we were, and so, so typical meaning sudden onset, striking visual field loss, usually in infer, inferior altitudinal, substantial relative afferent pupillary defect, and a crowded fellow optic disc. Then we were left with this sort of in-between group of five patients who were unilateral, but they sure weren't typical neiom. They looked different in in a variety of respects, and, and they were different in that they were three of the five were. Had insidious onset rather than sudden, and three of the four in whom we could evaluate the fellow disc did not have a typical crowded disc. They had a from 0.2 to 0.5 CD ratio in the fellow eye, and then all five of these cases had visual loss that was fairly mild, for, more more mild than typical NAION. So, and and we when we say mild, what we decided to use was not visual acuity, which doesn't work very well for this condition because NAION. Often retains 20/20 vision. People have the entire bottom half of the field gone, but they're still 20/20 in that top half. So you can't really use acuity. But we, what we used was relative afferent pupillary defect, and with a cutoff at 0.9, if the patients had greater than a 0.9 log unit RAPD, we felt that that was fairly typical for a non arteritic ION. And if it was less than that, which is kind of less than one, than plus one for for people who don't quantify. Um, we felt that that was sufficiently atypical that it would cast some doubt on the diagnosis. So people could be put in that intermediary group for really any any one of those reasons, either insidious onset, atypical fellow disc, or mildness of their visual loss. But in fact, they seem to have, uh, most of them had all of those things, or three, three or four or five. So there were three of the insidious onset, there were, three of them had that, of the generous disc ratio, three of the four had that, and all of them had mild visual loss. So, so as a group, they, they just look different from typical NAION. And so if, if the question is, you know, does NAION ever look like that? Well, yeah, it, it could, but in this setting, it would certainly make you nervous, and it would certainly would certainly raise the question as to whether these patients have amiodarone optic neuropathy, even though they're, they're unilateral. So this, this ended up being what we would call the indeterminate group where we were, were suspicious suspicious for amiodarone, but we would admit not as strong a, a feeling for this as we would have for the first group, for, for the bilateral.
0: Was amiodarone therapy stopped for any of these patients?
1: Yeah, actually it was stopped for most of them. Yeah, it was discontinued. In, out of 22 total patients, it was discontinued in 18, and it was in. For the other four, it was continued in three and reduced dosage in one. And most people, so it was it was actually surprising and kind of a relief. Most people actually did well. There were two patients of the eighteen people in whom it was discontinued, there were two patients that were unavailable for prolonged follow up. So we dropped those out. So of the sixteen, where it was stopped, and we could follow up on them, one patient unfortunately had a stroke two and a half months later. One had a myocardial infarction that was fatal one year later. And in both cases, it, it's not clear that that was directly related to stopping the medicine. Again, these people are at high risk for vascular disease. Anyway, they've got bad arrhythmias, but, but for what it's worth, they, they did not do well. And the others remained well with a follow-up of two to seven years later on some sort of alternative medication, either a pacemaker or a different medication or combination. somewhere on DIG, somewhere on beta blockers but they all did actually quite well.
0: Can I have you give me an example of a presentation that would be suggestive of amiodarone neuropathy?
1: Yeah, this would be a a patient who's been on the medication for several months. The average is about six months. So let's say a patient comes in on amiodarone for five months for arrhythmia, and what they've noticed is some mild visual loss in one eye just over the past couple of weeks. And when they're examined, it turns out that they, they do have mild loss in one eye, but the other disc is swollen as well. So, other tests of optic nerve function are normal in, in one, the fellow eye, but both are swollen. And often there'll be symptoms of toxicity, so some patients will have tremor or unsteadiness, not all of them, but, but a lot of them will have that. And neuroimaging would be normal. We would we'd get a scan for anybody with bilateral disc edema, and that would be negative. Said rate and CRP are normal. And and I I've gotten so that I feel like it's so such a recognizable scenario that somebody will call me sometimes with a case. They'll start telling me a story on the phone. that start just like I but like I told that story, but without the AMEO drone. They start out with you know I'm seeing this seventy-year-old man and he's got a two two-week history of blurred vision. And he comes in and he's got and and I'll describe the, the affected eye and then they'll say but the other eye is swollen. The other end of discus swollen, so we got a scan. That was normal, and his sed rates normal. And I'm sitting there being puzzled. I think, God, what what is this? Boy, this is this is a giant cell, but there's no symptoms. Sed rates really low. What could this be? What could this be? And then they'll say, and then they'll give me his medicine list, and he's on drone. Oh, and I say, okay, got it. I get it now. I mean, it's, it it really is atypical for most anything else. There's very few things that would present in this fashion, and and it has a very typical description for me. And then the ones that are harder, and this is one of the reasons we started looking at, at this population was I was struck, because of the case that I just told you that that's a typical one, that's very much what's been described in the past, that very mild visual loss, bilateral edema, But I had seen several patients referred actually by another neurophthalmologist with a kind of similar picture except the visual loss was much more severe. So like count fingers, vision um, in one eye than the other I mean, bilateral central scotomas, and and the puzzle, the puzzling part, the reason they were sent was that it didn't seem to fit for because The visual loss was too severe, and that's. Um, I started seeing those people a few years back, and and that's where I started to develop the theory, the concept that. That the first step was the edema and then what happened later depended on the host factors. That some people, in fact, because they just didn't tolerate the swelling, would go ahead and develop, what which for all the world seems at that point like ischemic optic neuropathy. I mean, in a sense, it is. The disc doesn't tolerate the swelling; it in and it infarcts. But that the first step, the actual just the swelling itself, is from the amiodarone. So, so we, would, um, so part of the idea of this paper was to expand. The clinical parameters, the clinical description of what what does drone look like, and what we came up with is that it doesn't it doesn't look just like what's been described before. This bilateral, good vision, insidious, nice, disc edema with good neurofunction that that actually includes people who have very severe visual loss.
0: Should it raise flags if the patient does not have crowded discs?
1: Well, in the in the case of the unilateral ones. Yes, I mean, it, sh- it certainly should because that's not a typical non-arteritic AION if the if fellow disc is, is not crowded. For the bilateral ones, you really can't tell. I mean, that's, you know, the reason we use the fellow, we always make a big deal out of the fellow eye, the cup disc ratio and the fellow eye in in ION, is because you can't judge the disc that's swollen because it fills in the cup. So for the people who have bilateral dydeema, there's not really a way to know what their cup used to look like, unless we could get people to sign up at birth for disc photographs, which would make my life easier if the entire population would agree to this, And, and, and then when they're old enough, they could all do visual fields. that would help too. But anyway, in, in somebody with bi- bilateral, simultaneous dycadeema, absent previous records, there's really not a way to know that. So yeah, so the idea that some discs don't tolerate it because they were crowded is, is really a theory. And sort of a hypothesis, but but we honestly don't have da- there's not data to support that. Would be what we would like to have, and, and I, some somewhere probably somebody is doing this. Would the idea of it would be a prospective study of every just take a large population of patients at the time they're started on amio before they start, sign them up and and do all that. Look, you know, do visual fields, take photographs of their discs, measure optic nerve function, watch them all. Um, and see who develops optic neuropathy and who doesn't. And what does it look like early, and, and whether are, are some people predisposed, and and then what does the vision do? Because I'm I'm not sure that the people with the small cup disk ratios are more prone to developing the disc edema, or are they just more prone to developing visual loss when they have disc edema. But it's, I mean, it's a hard study to do because we we all admit that you know we we found 22 patients, but it's out of a large, uh, a long time of looking. I mean, this is a very unusual side effect. Whether whatever the exact number is, maybe one percent, something or something smaller than that, but it, but it's not common. You'd have to watch a bunch of people for a while to find them. But, but that would certainly be the ideal study.
0: You earlier mentioned tremor. Uh, are there other signs that a patient can be toxic on amiodarone?
1: Yeah, the usual. There's three things usually. It's tremor, ataxia, and confusion. Or when when people are are toxic, that's. Um, the main neurologic symptoms.
0: Do you think that there's any correlation between toxicity and the development of the neuropathy? Now, I I, I know that this condition's rare and that uh, as a result, it's very difficult to make any sort of statement about correlations. But what's the thinking here? Is it that patients who are more toxic are more likely to develop the neuropathy?
1: Yeah, that, that's hard to say, and, we, and our numbers don't really support that, but let's see, of our Bilateral group, uh, one, two, three, four, f- five. Yeah, just five out of fourteen had symptoms consistent with toxicity. So a bunch of them didn't. I, I guess I've we've taken the position that, that it would get your attention. For again, for that intermediate group, the ones that are, you're thinking maybe have NEIWN who just happen to have it while on amio, if they also just happen to have toxic symptoms, that to me that would be a, a warning flag. But we didn't. It, it wasn't robust enough for us to use it, to, you know, to, to, as a differential feature.
0: Do you think that there's any correlation with corneal findings with the verticillata? My guess would be not. Uh, verticillata we see in pretty much all of these patients.
1: Right. I think it would only work the other way that if somebody didn't have corneal findings, you would, and and they have an optic neuropathy, you'd certainly wonder. Um, you know, I think anybody that. That hasn't been on it either on it long enough or on high enough dose to develop the corneal findings probably hasn't had enough of it to hurt their optic nerves, so it would certainly be suspicious that they don't have amaioptic neuropathy if the cornea is normal, but it doesn't doesn't work the other way though.
0: Do you have any advice for general ophthalmologists?
1: The first advice, um, just based on medical legal cases that are out there, is to absolutely to be aware of the condition. So first thing is know about it and second thing is to bring it up and discuss it and the third thing is to call the cardiologist and and so clearly it has to be talked about. So patients uh, cases where somebody's gotten sued uh, especially successfully seem to revolve around the idea that nobody even got it. It wasn't mentioned, it wasn't on their radar screen. So so first step is to think about it. Always talk talking to the cardiologist is, is one of my least favorite things to do. It, I feel like this is enough in in print now that it's much less likely to have a cardiologist insist they've never heard of such a thing. But, I mean, for years I would call up and say, you know, this, I'm seeing your patient. He's on AMIO. I think it's causing some visual loss. And it would be, of course, no, you know, none of us want to hear that maybe we're doing something that's causing a problem. But but it would be this, you know, outrage. Like, what, I, I've never heard of such a thing. Who, who, who says this exists? Where, where did you get that from? So, nowadays, they they do know, mostly they'll know about it. There's still some skepticism, I think, as to whether it really, really, in in the cardiology circles, they're very attached to the medication. It's got a lot of of advantages over other antiarrhythmics, so it's a favorite. But what I have discovered in, so so when you call up, I guess the, the idea is to try to present a realistic picture of how much is this patient at risk. And how much do we really want the patient off? And sometimes on a good day, you luck out, and it turns out they're about to get the patient off anyway. And I guess I've not had anybody really insist. I mean, the point is it needs to be presented as a relative contraindication. The question is, what would you think about getting this patient off? How safe would it be? What are his alternatives? It's not. Appropriate to call up and say if you don't get a patient off the amio they're they're going to go blind. I mean we would admit we don't know that, but certainly if if another medication could be substituted and it would be safe and effective, then that would be preferable and and usually they'll they'll work with you and and um you can find something an alternative
0: Valerie, thank you very much
1: I appreciate it thanks have a good evening bye.
0: Valerie Pervin is Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology and Neurology at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. Her paper, Optic Neuropathy in Patients Using Amiodarone, appears in the May 2006 issue of Archives of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Pervin or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.